Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Pano Canelos. Pano is an educator, a Shakespeare scholar, and is the founding president of the University of Austin. During our conversation, Pano talks about the problems within modern universities, the principles that have and will guide the creation of the University of Austin, why Austin, Texas was chosen as the location of this new university, the timeline for the rollout of the school, and what success would look like for UATX. The University of Austin received 3,500 inquiries in its first week of existence from professors at other universities about career opportunities. From prior conversations on this podcast, I'm persuaded that censorship, self-censorship, monoculture, a lack of tolerance for minority opinions, a lack of academic diversity, and a lack of courage are real problems at modern universities. Pano has called universities the beating heart of a free society, and I think he's right about that. If we are a society that aims to remain democratic, tolerant, and pluralistic, that's committed to civil discourse and resists dogma, that's fearless in its aim to seek the truth, we should applaud the lofty ambitions of the University of Austin and hope that it influences and improves our broader culture and our exceptional institutions of higher learning. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Pano Canelos. Pano, I have been looking forward to talking to you for close to a year. It is a, it's a real pleasure for me to get some of your very valuable time. Uh, welcome to the show, man. It's great to meet you and, and welcome on. Great to meet you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Likewise. Um, I would love to start in getting a little bit of information about your background story. You're a Shakespeare scholar. And I'm wondering how you make sense of the story of what has brought you to being the president of really what I consider to be a startup, a new university that is based on principles. You know, I'm sure if I were to talk to you 10, 15 years ago, you probably couldn't have foreseen the path to where you are now, where you are now. But how do you make sense of that story, roughly speaking for yourself, how, how did you end up in this position? Um, I, if you had talked to me two years ago, I wouldn't have been <laughs> about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I'm trying to, in my mind, connect being a Shakespearean scholar with the, the <laughs> I can spin something out of that, but, um, I actually, I probably could, uh, I'll start with, that. um, you know, uh, people think of, of Shakespeare and shows Shakespearean drama as a kind of institution, like something that's sort of always been there and has always been important and sort of central to the culture. Um, um, but when Shakespeare was actually Shakespeare, when he was living, he was he had a startup company. Mm. Uh, you know, it was called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they were a scrappy group of actors that got together and they, they became successful and they built a theater and then they built a second theater and, um, uh, and established over time what would become... Um, you know, this this thing that we think of as capital S Shakespeare. Um, and, I, you know, I think that in some sense, you know, when you're starting an institution like we are and you're kind of living in that moment, 
um, you are uh, just kind of trying to get wins day to day, trying to do the right thing and hoping that you're moving in the right direction and hoping that the things that are guiding you are the right things and looking for that North Star to move towards. And so for us, it's sort of, it feels very live, live alive and it feels very much like a um, rapidly moving, like organic process that we're going through starting university. And I think that's probably what it felt like to be Shakespeare at the time. Yeah, yeah. I know before this position, you were you had also been a college president at St. John's, I think, in Annapolis. And when someone asks you what it was about the University of Austin that was appealing enough for you or important enough maybe for you to to make this kind of a leap, how do you answer that question? What was it about UATX that that you thought maybe they were they were really hitting on something that mattered? Yeah, it's a, a leap is the way to think about it because I was, you know, I love St. John's College. I think it's a great institution. I think it's, um, you know, one of the finest undergraduate educations that you could receive. And it has a wonderful MA program. It's very distinctive. It does all the sorts of things that I I, I think should be happening at universities and colleges, you know, uh, focus on great ideas, on conversation. There's a great open-minded culture there. Um, so I never felt like I was leaving St. John's to leave St. John's. What UATX provided was a kind of opportunity to take that same value set that you have at St. John's, a kind of commitment to liberal education, a commitment to intellectual pluralism, a commitment to you know dialogue and conversation, and um, try to leverage that into an institution that could have broader cultural impact. Mm -hmm. um, St. John's was never intended to be more than a kind of small but very potent college and, you know, primarily undergraduate college and has remained that over time. Um, but we were thinking about creating an institution that would model some of the fundamental and foundational principles um, that, you know, we think all, all institutions of higher learning should be, um, should be oriented towards. And so this was a chance to sort of scale it up, I would say. Yeah. I think for a lot of people who have a toe in the academic world, the fact that there is a movement afoot to kind of start from scratch, start from zero to, you know, prioritize and emphasize the best aspects of what a university is supposed to be won't be that much of a surprise. But for people who are living, you know, their normal lives in the country who are not particularly familiar with what is going on on campus, this may be a bit of a surprise. But, you know, in reading uh, I was rereading Barry Weiss's announcement, which I think was was posted in November of 2021, about the need to start a new university. And she was brilliant in articulating the reasons for why she thought it it needed to happen and why it mattered. You know, in my reading of her her essay, it, it seemed to her, and I, I would bet you probably agree with this assessment, that something rotten had happened in a lot of the universities that what they were designed to do, they were no longer doing. Um, and I know, you know, you have said this in prior interviews that the university of Austin is a school based upon principles. Fundamentally, that's really what the school is all about. What were the principles? What are the principles in modern colleges that you feel like are not being upheld to the level that, that need them, that they, that they need to be. This is, this is another something I've heard you say that, you know, universities are the beating heart of a free society. Mm -hmm. That's what they are. What what has happened to modern universities in your judgment? 
Well, I think we need to start with the question, you know, why do we call higher education, higher education? Like it's, it's an interesting term, isn't it? We don't call yeah. it sort of, you know, it, you know, the final stage of education, we call it higher education as if we're, we're reaching for something higher than we've reached for up to that point in our education. And I think what distinguishes higher education, what distinguishes universities is that, um, you know, up until up, let's say K through 12, the primary purpose of education is to provide students with fundamental tools to learn things about the world. Those develop in the skills. So you start learning the alphabet and then you put letters together and those become words and you start using those in ever more complex ways. Um, you know, and whether you're studying mathematics or history, the experience of K through 12 education is primarily about um, filling in, you know, the, 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 the things that one needs to know about the world and how to operate in the world. Um, the purpose of higher education is really what we think of as critical inquiry. In other words, um, turning knowledge back on itself to question those things which form the education that we have at the K through 12 level. So, you know, when you're studying history, for example, you know, in high school, you have a textbook. And you have ideas presented to you. And, you know, you're sort of asked to think about these things in maybe complex ways and that. But the job of historians at a university is to continue to question the fundamental premises and facts of history itself. And then question the process through which we, you know, become historians or use history in that. So it's sort of taking thinking and turning it back upon itself. That's what critical thinking is. Um in order to do that, in order to create knowledge, in order to be an institution that's really dedicated towards a kind of the process of critical inquiry, you have to have a few, let's say, kind of um, foundational um, principles uh, that you adhere to. And one is that the knower, the person who's studying something, uh, you know, writing about something, um, has to be able to be self-critical. The only way we can learn about the world is we're constantly thinking about the ways that we filter the things that we know about the world. And to be self-critical, you have to be exposed to ideas that um, maybe are in tension with the things that you yourself hold to be true or hold to be dear. So, you know, I think of Socrates as kind of the patron saint of higher education. What did Socrates do? He just ran, he walked around Athens and he annoyed everybody by asking them to always question their fundamental premises. You know, he asked them, you know, well, you know, what is truth? And he would get an answer. And then he'd go back and say, well, why do you think that's what truth is? And then what about looking at it from this angle? And he'd push and push. What is justice? You know, what is education? And push and push and push on those questions. Um, trying to move everybody towards better answers or more truthful answers, but you know, knowing that we'll probably never get to a final answer, that's the job of universities, mm. right? That's what distinguishes them. So I think one of the problems we have in the culture today is that universities have, um, let's call it become monocultural. Um, most universities uh, lean very heavily towards one end of the political spectrum um, and become places where it's harder and harder to find disagreement. I don't think there's anything nefarious about this. I don't think it's, you know, uh, you know, I don't think there's some sort of conspiracy to, by the left to capture institutions. I think it's just things have iterated in one direction in most institutions. And it's created a kind of, I would call a vacuum um, where 
um, the ability to question fundamental premises is not front and center. Mm. Um, and then we have this response from people who look at, you know, they say, well, the le- you know, the left is the left dominates universities. We need to create universities on the right. Well, to me, that's repeating the same category, yeah. right? If the problem is a kind of monoculture, an inability to see things from outside one's own perspective or in complex ways, the solution isn't just to create something on the other side of, uh, of a, an imagined political divide. So what we're really trying to do is reintroduce in the universities the spirit of critical inquiry. And to have to do that, you have to have an unfettered commitment to intellectual pluralism, to the civil discourse that allows us to disagree in productive ways, and to have a, just, an, just an unbridled passion for truth, even if that truth is unsettling. Yeah. I've heard you say this in prior interviews too, that, you know, it isn't that the, that the university of Austin is committed to the pursuit of truth. It's committed to the fearless pursuit of truth. That is really what the spirit of the school is trying to embody. Yeah. You know, you, you just use, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, I'm like, if you're actually pursuing truth in an authentic way, it's kind of scary. <laughs> so, so fearless, I mean, when we say fearless, we, that's aspirational, right? <laughs> we want to pursue truth no matter where, where it might take us. Um, you know, not that we have some sort of um, super abundance of courage, but that we recognize that actually pursuing truth is it's, it's dangerous, it's, it's unsettling, and difficult. And so, we're trying to cultivate courage in the face of that pursuit. Yeah. And probably annoy people in, in the process of doing that. You know, you just you use the word monoculture to describe a lot of modern universities. And I have heard you say this in prior interviews that, you know, in, in your mind, a lot of the um, polarization in the country, if I'm remembering your words correctly, you attribute directly to that kind of monoculture. Um, now I don't know if you, you know, still agree with that assessment or if I'm kind of misquoting you there, but if, if that is generally your view, what is it about, how is the monoculture trickling into society? What kind of, you know, beliefs or perspectives are being held almost like religious convictions? It seems to me by a lot of the population that's really uh, perpetuating the kind of, you know, political divisiveness and polarization that I think most people now recognizes is, is rampant in the United States. I guess the way that I would think about this is that um, for us to truly understand the world we live in and then to, or to best understand the world we live in <laughs> and to make the best possible decisions and choices that we can make because we're creatures with agency. We have to make up our mind about things and take action. For us to um, have the best possible understanding, um, we we have to approach the things of this world in a kind of rational fashion. And I don't mean that there aren't things like emotions and experience and all that. That's all very, very important and critical and shape who we are. What I mean by rational is that um, we exchange ideas in a way that is evidence-based. Um, And so, you know, whatever it is that you might think, um, you know, I need to listen to and you need to provide evidence and I do the same thing. And in having this kind of exchange of ideas, this thing we call dialogue, right? Dialogue just means two creatures of logos, two rational creatures exchanging something via logos. So as we exchange, we actually come to understand ourselves and the world better. 
And um, to do that, we have to be willing to um, put aside things like politics because politics are about power. So if you and I are having a conversation and everything is political, that means one of us is going to be dominant and one's going to be submissive in the end. Somebody's going to win. Yeah. Right? And But if we put aside politics and we kind of just, you know, can can start to think about something that's things that are more important, bigger human questions, things that are more central to who we are and and um, have a kind of honest conversation with each other. We're going to learn things from each other. And, you know, one plus one is going to add up to more than two. So part of the problem we have today is the pervasiveness of politics, that politics, um, the kind of zero sum game of a highly polarized world has become the dominant culture. Mm. Um, and so finding ways to transcend that, to push past this kind of binary, this political binary, is not only critically important, it is, I think, the responsibility of universities. Yeah. So I think if universities aren't actively trying to um, supersede the limitations we have in our kind of quotidian culture, the politics and that, if we're actively trying to be above and beyond that, if we're sort of stuck in the weeds, um, there's no other institution that we have that will pull us out of this, this mess. Yeah. And, and so I think universities are responsible for the polarization today, particularly in that universities have a responsibility to be striving for something better and, and striving for something higher. Yeah. I want to read out, I, I said this earlier that, you know, the University of Austin is, is a university that is attempting to be a school based upon principles. I'd like to, to read those out. And this is directly from the, um, your, the university website. And this is, again, the, the principles. Universities devoted to the unfettered pursuit of truth are the cornerstones of a free and flourishing democratic society. For universities to serve their purpose, they must be fully committed to freedom of inquiry, freedom of conscience, and civil discourse. In order to maintain these principles, UATX will be fiercely independent, financially independent, intellectually, and politically. What makes UATX different? A commitment to free inquiry, a new financial model, an innovative curriculum. And this is directly from your Twitter tagline. We're building a university dedicated to the fearless pursuit of truth. You mentioned a phrase earlier um, this about civil discourse. And I've heard you speak about this in prior interviews too, about what a civil discourse really is about. I thought you, you spoke about it brilliantly, which is, and these are always my favorite classrooms you know classes in college were going into you know a small forum and having a discussion with a collection of intelligent people and leaving the room collectively with better answers to fundamental questions than you came in with if you could i'd love for you to paint that picture of what civil discourse to you really really is about and how you envision it being implemented at the University of Austin? Yeah, so, um, you know, too often we think of, we use the phrase civil discourse as if it means two people with, you know, opposing ideas coming together, expressing their ideas and not killing each other. <laughs> Civility, right? Like you know, we can, and, and that's not really what civil discourse is. I mean, that's, 
it's a good thing if that happens, right? But true civil discourse is about building together the society that we live in. That's the civil part of civil discourse. Mm-hmm. That are that the the society we live in a democratic um society that we live in is a society that is primarily constituted by speech acts, right? What do you do in a democracy? You argue for opinions and ideas and you come together and trying to find solutions. And a, a healthy democracy functions in a way that allows um, opinions to circulate um, openly, honestly, broadly, so that the best possible answers can be found. Um, so civil discourse means bringing two people together or more people <clears throat> under the conditions that allow for the free exchange of ideas. And essentially those conditions are three. Um, the first is intellectual humility. All right. We are all um, on this planet for a very short while. We don't really know very much. <laughs> I mean, I know I don't. I mean, I may have a PhD, but I, there are um, there are a thousand times my ignorance is a thousandfold greater than anything I could have learned in my PhD program. And so we we live in a short while. We're mostly ignorant. We're stumbling through life, our lives. We're trying to figure things out. And so starting off from a place of intellectual humility, realizing that maybe we actually don't know as much as we think we do, and maybe coming together with others who have the ability to help us fill in some of our knowledge gaps is a productive thing. So starting there, and then from civil, from, uh, sorry, from intellectual humility, you know, the next step is what I call, you know, the the absolute commitment to the dignity of all interlocutors. So if we're going to have conversations, we have to recognize that we all have equal standing, we all have equal value, we all have equal worth, and we all have an equal capacity to contribute something of value. So human beings are equally dignified and of equal equal worth. So you always have to remember that as you're, you know, sort of grounded in these conversations. And the third thing is um, a passion for truth. Right. So we begin by saying, well, we don't know very much, but we're actually driven by this passion to learn as much as we can, to try and get as close to things that are truthful as we can, to distinguish right from wrong, better from worse, facts from fiction. Um, And human beings, I think, are actually hardwired to desire this. I mean, I think human fulfillment is really predicated upon us being able to seek after knowledge and seek after truth. This is just who we are. This is what we do. Uh, doesn't mean we always find it. Doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. But this is what gives our lives directionality. And so, at a school like Saint, uh, sorry, at a school like University of Austin, got to change my president hats once in a while. Um, I think what's critical is creating an environment that cultivates civil discourse. So, for example, in the classroom, I mean, the rules are very simple. Every opinion must be heard, and every opinion must be backed up by evidence. If you abide by those rules, you can have true conversation. You know, it's not just about saying what you think or feel, but showing, you know, those who you're in conversation with why you think what you think and feel how you feel and backing that up with evidence and then listening to others as they do the same thing. And then there's a kind of sort of magical alchemy that happens when everybody does that. You begin trusting each other, respecting each other and having conversations that move in productive directions. Yeah. As an outsider, someone who has not been in a university for for well over a decade, you know, I've I've read the headlines and the articles about you know some of the people from 
various universities who are now associated, many of them, with the University of Austin. And to be honest with you, a lot of them are dream guests of mine for this podcast. They're some of the people who I think are you know, some of the smartest and some of the bravest people who are working in academia right now. But it does strike me that many of them have lived through kind of like intellectual and social witch hunts at their universities where, you know, that spirit of equal standing and all opinions being, you know, needing to be backed up by evidence, but are welcome to be shared. It doesn't seem like that has been their experience at a variety of different universities in, in America. And I'm wondering if it might be helpful for people who, you know, aren't associated with the university, don't go to colleges ever, don't really know what's happening on campus with some of these, you know, anecdotal stories. What do you know about what has happened to some of these professors? You know, some of the students, I know self-censorship is, you know, in the polling data that Barry Weiss was quoting in her essay, something like 60% of modern university students say that they, they don't feel comfortable speaking their actual opinion in a classroom. What the hell has happened there? What are some of these stories that you're familiar with that seem to back up that truth about what's happening on modern college campuses? Yeah, I think what the, the root cause here of, of these, um, of the sorts of things that, that, both faculty and students are encountering at universities around, let's say that they're um, that limit their capacity to speak. Is that you know the 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 social cost of being on the wrong side of political issues today is so high. Yeah, um, and I do think this is all a kind of downstream and direct result of the rise of social media, where you know especially young people sort of live in a world where. They're constantly checking what they're saying because they've seen how, you know, um, the wrong idea at the wrong time or the wrong expression can have severe consequences. And so they're living in this kind of with this kind of internal sense of um, surveillance, like self-surveillance. Right. And um, and they go to university and the universities can either um, alleviate that sense for them by creating a free and open environment or. Um, enhance for them that sense that the world is looking over their shoulder in a hypercritical way. Um, and I think, you know, in many cases, sadly, I think um, universities are providing experiences that that don't uh, open up the space of inquiry. Um, and again, this isn't everywhere and it's not all the time, but it happens enough that you just feel like the the general ambient environment is is less than open. I mean, I'll give a couple of examples. Um, you know, we have a young woman who uh, is working for us now, who's a relatively recent graduate of a top university, and she she shared with us at uh, a meeting. We have these sort of weekly meetings where we uh, the entire staff we all get together and we read books together, and we and we're reading a book now called. Um, uh, liberal education and free speech by a guy named Donald Downs. We're reading it a few chapters. We're just talking about it. It's a, a group so that we can focus our discussions. And and so during the last discussion, she shared with us that as a student um, during COVID, you know, the classes were all online, and and one of the political science professor uh, classes, a professor came in and said, I don't remember the context, but said something like, anybody who who voted for Donald Trump is a racist. Like, and stop. 
And so this young woman who, I don't know if she voted for Donald Trump or not, but felt like that's something that you can't just declare and not not push back on, um, uh, pushed back and uh, and and said, well, you know, I don't know about that. You know, there, there are some other ways to think about that. And is everybody really racist that? And the professor got in a really heated argument with her about this. But what was most interesting is that during this conversation, because they were on Zoom, she was receiving private messages through chat from, you know, she said about half the class who kept saying like, well, we'll argue this and say that. And I wish I could speak out loud, but I don't, you know, there, in other words, half the class there wanted to become part of that conversation, but felt like if they said something publicly um, that went counter to the professor's case, that they would be ostracized. Um, and it wasn't so much that they were worried about the professor and their grades, they were also worried about the other students in the class. Like they might be outed as, you know, somebody who has unsavory political opinions. And so just thinking about that dynamic, you know, that for every student who maybe has courage to speak up and push back against received opinions, there are tenfold the number of students who are holding back because of the social consequences. Um, you know, and faculty too, I think experiences as well. You watch a single member of a faculty at your own institution or another institution um, pay the price for being heterodox or pushing against received ideas. And it really has a kind of deadening effect, both on how you teach and what kind of scholarship you do. And there's enough of this going around that I think um, that effect is pervasive. And again, I think most institutions are, you know, are, are well-intentioned. And I think most professors have no desire whatsoever to be censorious. I think most students don't want to do that as well. But we just know that in the, the hypercritical world we live in, a world that's, you know, where everybody's walking on eggshells, that it's particularly hard to be uh, at a university where ideas are, you know, the sort of the air that people breathe. Mm. And so trying to, you know, create a freer sense for, for young people and for faculty a place where they can exchange ideas without the same fear of, of social risk or um, social consequences, uh, that they can be wrong, that they can, you know, say something that maybe somebody might find offensive. And that person can in return say, hey, I'm offended by this. Let's let's talk about why that's the case. Um, that's what we want to do. I mean, when we don't have a chance to express ourselves to one another with openness and with trust and with a degree of grace, conversation shuts down and if conversation shuts down universities lose their bearing mm. yeah you know i we've used this uh term earlier in the conversation about the this university being like a startup and i think like in the business world you can have what you think is a great idea for a startup and then you make that business available and nobody's interested um and you either need to pivot and innovate and change something or you're going to die and I think one of the things for me that persuaded me that you and your team are onto something is just the sheer demand that was immediately obvious to you and the people who work for you and work for the university. I've heard you say this, that in the first week that you went live, you had 3,500 inquiries from people working at universities around the world. Is that right? And what do you make of that you know initial signal in the yeah. first i think it was five or seven days yeah of people that seem to be desperate for you know probably being in the kind of forum that you just outlined in your last statement 
I mean, it was it was revelatory for us as well. I mean, I think we're at five, six thousand faculty right now who have reached out to us from other universities to apply for jobs. And we really haven't posted any open faculty. <laughs> um, so to me, I mean, that you know, to me, that is, you know, that's the um, that's what's between the lines in higher education, that there are. Uh, so many people who feel disaffected at their own institutions that feel like, you know, enough um, pressure that they would actually consider working at a university that doesn't yet exist, right? That we're still, we're still building it. It's still, you know, it's still coming to being, but they're already thinking about that. Um, and those are just the faculty that reached out to us. I mean, you know, for every one of those five or 6,000 faculty, there must be many more who um, feel the same way, but just haven't reached out to us or haven't even heard of us. Um, and we have a similar, we've had similar response from students. I mean, we had our first summer program last June, which we called the Forbidden Courses, uh, which, where we invited students from other universities to come take courses with faculty to discuss, you know, really, um, you know, let's say, politically and culturally charged topics in an environment that let people be expressive and, and share opinions as a sort of maximalist environment for opinions. Mm. Uh, and we call those forbidden courses because, you know, if you want to attract young people, you tell them something's forbidden and, they, and that's, you know, that's very effective. And, you know, we weren't entirely sure what the response was going to be from students. So a whole bunch of adults think this university is a great idea. A whole bunch of professors think it's a great idea, but it doesn't matter students don't think it's a good idea. Um, so we kept that program pretty small. We had about 80 student slots over two weeks. Um, and we had tens of thousands of inquiries from students across the world. Uh, our applications came from you know, every, every elite university in the US and the world, every state university. We had applications from community colleges, from people who are finishing law school. I mean, from across the whole breadth of education. Um, and it was overwhelming to have to choose 80 from yeah. those numbers. Um, the, the real proof of concept though, wasn't just that students responded, um, but that when they came, the experience they had was the experience that we hoped they would have. Um, the students universally reported to us that this was what they were looking for at college. These are the conversations they had hoped to have at the schools they came from, from Brown or Stanford. We had students from the Sorbonne in, uh, in France and from Edinburgh and Oxford. And they were saying these are the conversations that they had expected to have at college, but they found, you know, very rarely, if ever. And those 80 students we had um, have gone on, of their own accord, formed the UATX Alumni Association, and are continuing. They're writing public pieces about what we're doing. They, they're, um, you know, evangelizing for for what we're doing. They're they're wonderful uh, representatives of the institution. And so, for me, that was a moment that spoke to us and said, you know, this is proof of concept. This this is what students are. Um, this is the kind of education they're oriented towards desiring, and it becomes our responsibility to provide that for them as best we can. Yeah. You alluded to this earlier, and I this is a, a deep belief I have as well, which is that I think people are it's in our nature to keep a free mind that is curious and open and fearless. No one wants, I think initially, no one aspires to have their brain be shut down by intimidation 
and self-censorship. It's in our, you see it in children. It's in our, it's in our character to thirst for that kind of environment. It doesn't surprise me at all that those initial 80 kids had that kind of an experience because they probably had been thirsting for it their whole life and had never maybe ever had something like that before where they felt free to, you know, ask that question or make that comment and, and grow um, in that way. And, you know, I'd love to talk about the rollout here because I, I, you know, you just mentioned the forbidden courses, which was just a few months ago, I think in Dallas coming up here, what, what's the, I I kept thinking during this conversation about a, a line I heard in, um, a Paul Graham essay. Paul Graham is the founder of Y Combinator and is a brilliant writer. And he talks about startups as being you know, successful startups as being akin to a child, where at the very beginning, you see this helpless little thing that you can't ever imagine growing into someone who is capable of creativity and great works of art and becoming a parent themselves someday. The, 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 the path from infancy to, you know, competence is a very long one, but that's what happens. And I think, you know, I think his point is that we often underestimate what capable startups are able to do in a relatively short amount of time, provided they keep improving by 1% a day or keep doing the right things over a significant portion of time. How do you think about that in terms of the, the time frame of the rollout, the growth of the university what would you what would you judge as a success for you know the next few years well you know we we really believe that um there's a sense of urgency around this project you know that if we were to take 10 years to develop the university and sort of roll it out that that we wouldn't be um playing the kind of role we want to play in, in terms of um you know creating an institution that can model free inquiry and civil discourse at a time where we really need that modeled. Um, so we have a very uh, compressed timeline. Uh, our our goal is to bring our first freshman uh, in two years time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we've already begun the process of accreditation. We're building our financial model. We're, we're hiring staff and we're recruiting faculty and we're raising money and we're getting ready to build a campus. And so all of these balls are in the air at the same time. Mm. Um, and so for us, for me, I should say, uh, the timeline seems less linear and um, more about, you know, juggling the plates while you're riding the unicycle, you know, on the on the tightrope across the pit f- filled with alligators, you know, and just trying to make it to the other side. And so there's just so much going on. Um, but at, at every on every front, everything is proceeding um even you know more rapidly and and more robustly than we expected so you know we have about 30 people building the university now when i when we started this last july i was employee number one <laughs> and my first job was to start building the team around that we've got about 30 people we have about you know another three or four dozen people who are serving us in advisory roles um you know, we have, uh, you know, we've raised more money than we had anticipated raising by this point. And that's keeps getting better. And, and the money keeps coming in and, and, um, you know, uh, more gratifying <laughs> gifts. Uh, we, you know, we, we built our curriculum in a record uh, sort of period of time. I mean, because we're on this kind of tight schedule with accreditation that we all hunkered down and it was like finals week every single week 
for the six months where we're just ironing out the curriculum and putting together the faculty handbook and working on policies and all that. And the team was just here all the time doing that. And and so in a sense, that's, you know, that's often how startups feel, right? Where you're sort of sleeping under your desk at night and 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 you have these goals and that's what we've been doing. Um, and we're pushing ourselves not because, I mean, most startups are trying to make money. Let's be honest. Most are for-profit business. And so they realize that there's a kind of time frame. There's an investment that comes in, there's some seed money, and they have to show progress um, for their investors over time. We don't have investors. We're not trying to make money. Um, for us, the profit is something, you know, inchoate, less tangible. The profit is doing what we think we should be doing in the world at this moment in time. Um, and every step we take in that direction, uh, it just feels like the, the the pieces are sort of consolidating and coming together. It's a great feeling. We have challenges. I mean, like there's a it's a lot of work to build a university. It's a lot of work, but things um, things just feel right. They feel like they're going in the right direction at the right pace. Yeah. Another component to this, and I, I heard you say this in a, a prior interview about your own upbringing, that I think when you were a kid, you worked in a Greek restaurant and a quote, a statistic that Barry Weiss has noted, and I think you, know, you probably are familiar with, it's something like four out of every 10 incoming college freshmen do not graduate from university. So 40% of people who are beginning their journey at, in higher education end up not getting their degree and are often tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. How are you thinking about this financially? I know you've had some pretty public successes in the amount of, you know, pretty large donations that have come your way for the university. But how are you? How are you trying to craft the school to make it, you know, potentially significantly more affordable or just smarter in terms of its financial burden on it on its students? Well, I think the thing, the, the place to begin is to ask the question: Why? Why is somebody? attending an institution, what do they hope to achieve um, from their time there? Um, and what responsibilities do we have to those students? Um, the, the marketplace for colleges and universities who are all competing for students is extremely, extremely savage. Um, you know, what most people don't realize, because everybody thinks, oh, well, it's so competitive to get into schools and high school students are working so hard to put together their, you know, their, their, their resumes and get the right test scores and that, and as if, you know, as if there are too few spots for them. <clears throat> but the fact is that there are too few students attending universities now for the number of institutions that are out there. Mm -hmm. And that means that institutions are becoming competitive. And so they're chasing after those students um, in ways that I think are um, not concordant with their mission. So what you find are universities that are building fancy amenities or, you know, focusing on the student experience as the most important thing as opposed to the classroom or uh, overly obsessed with athletics or things like that as a way to, to attract students. And all of those things um, are expensive <laughs> and they add to the cost of education. The, the the actual money that's being spent in the classroom has not risen significantly over the past couple of decades, mm -hmm. right? at least not relative to the total cost of education. So if you look at the amount of money spent per student on you know, academically related things, it's relatively flat. 
But if you look at what's happened with tuition over time, you know, it's gone up exponentially. So that gap between the cost and the cost of education, what happened in the classroom is growing wider and wider over time. So what we're trying to do is just say, look, kids are here to learn. Our job is to is to build and strengthen their minds and to give them the kind of experience and skills that's going to aim them in the right direction for the rest of their lives. All right. We believe that the primary purpose of, of higher education is human flourishing and that it's a job of a university not to prepare you for your first employment, but to teach you the fundamentals of human flourishing, to allow you to, to, to be capable of seeking what's best uh, for you over the course of your life, which includes getting a job. It includes professions, but isn't limited to that. Mm -hmm. So for us, we're focusing, um, I would say, uh, almost exclusively on, on the academic side of the ledger. We won't have athletics. We're not going to have fancy facilities. We're not going to have sushi bars and the proverbial climbing wall and all that. You know, none of, We're not going to do any of that. We're going to pay professors really well so that we get the best possible professors. And we're going to keep tuition as low as we can keep it. And, you know, we'll have a vibrant social life. I mean, students find a way to have vibrant social lives. I mean, there'll be, you know, all the, all the, um, all the kind of extracurriculars that support academic growth, like, you know, arts and theater clubs, or, you know, you know, intramural sports, you know, or, or that kind of things that are student driven. Um, but we want to keep the financial model as lean as possible because ultimately um, the cost for that expansion of services is borne by the students. Yeah. And that's, I think, where, where the burden becomes too burdensome. Um, they think they want it. They go tour the colleges and they're like, well, every college has a sky high price. So I might as well take the one with the, you know, the fanciest dorm. Or I might take the one that has the great workout facilities. Um but we don't have to be part of that war of attrition. We don't have to escalate amenities. We have to show that, that the universities can be as effective, if not better, if they focus primarily on academics. Yeah. And from your vantage point, and I know, you know, this is still new for you. You haven't been at this all that long, but from what, you know, you have learned in the year or two you've been in your position, what do you need? What what is What are the most important things at this point that you know, somebody listening to this who is particularly talented or capable or or has, you know, means, what do you need to, in, in your judgment to really scale this, to make this successful? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, beyond obviously the resources that you need to start a university are, are massive and intimidating, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, but we're working on that. Like that's coming together. And, and, and um, you know, we're always gratified by by people who want to support what we're doing through gifts and philanthropy. Um, but I think there maybe are even more essential needs. Um, the first thing we need is uh, we, we need to be able to uh, communicate as clearly and effectively to the world the urgency of the mission that we're on. And that's why I'm so glad to do podcasts like this and get a chance to talk about the university. Uh, we're making the case for the kind of institution we're trying to build. And we're doing this in a way that um, hopefully will stimulate not only students to come you know, to this community, faculty to join us, but for everybody just to think about, you know, 
higher education and the importance of higher education and the principles that should drive higher education. We want to generate that kind of conversation. That's that's very important to us. Um, we need ideas, right? As you're building a university and you're thinking about every single element from the ground up, uh, you know, we have ideas, but we love those who challenge the ideas we have, who push back against things, who give us, um, you know, a, a different set of ideas to think about. And so we're constantly seeking out interlocutors. We're constantly seeking out those who have experience in higher ed or experience in the business world and 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 asking them to stress test what it is that we're proposing. Uh, I had an amazing conversation recently with a fellow um who is a supporter of ours, but who just wanted to talk about, you know, he was really, really thinking deeply about, you know, how we provide this kind of education in the most accessible way for all students. <clears throat> how do we make sure that every single student who desires this kind of education will have access to it? Mm -hmm. You know, and he and I sat for three or four hours and he was, we were thinking deeply about, you know, how do we reach students who may not um, quite understand the value of this kind of education? How do we penetrate the noise that's out there in the media? How do we make students aware that financially um, we'll find the any way we can to make this education accessible to them? Um, you know, having these kind of conversations for us is really critical at the juncture that we're at, which is a founding moment. So for us, it's it's conversation partners, it's great ideas, it's um, you know getting the word out there and making sure that we are accurately representing what it is that we value and we hope to achieve. To me, that's the most important um, service right now that that we're providing and that we need provided to us. Yeah, and not to be bleak, but if a you know if universities like yours, let's say hypothetically, you know this doesn't work, or you had never been persuaded to create this and neither had Barry Weiss or anyone else. I, in many ways, it seems to me that our culture is downstream of what is going on on campus. And so are our politics in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. What's the path that we're on, right? I mean, th there's so many details that we've talked about in this conversation, but I think, you know, for me, one of the primary reasons that this is important is to course correct a trajectory that it seems like is gaining momentum culturally that is not particularly healthy or good or um, even compatible with a long-term democratic civilization you know not to be too grandiose about you know the the goals of the of the school here but you know in your judgment if there isn't a course correction um if there isn't a you know sort of a zeitgeist shift that is makes civil discourse more paramount that allows for fearless free inquiry to be not only acceptable but encouraged um how do how you must have thought about this before you you decided to join but no what 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 did you think was the you know kind of the the bleakest outcome here, or that maybe that just the, the the path that the country was on that really needed to be corrected. You know, it's funny. I um, I'm I'm a hopeful person. I'm an optimist. Um, that's why we're building something. We're builders. <laughs> we're founders. You no, know, 
we think that you know the way that um, we move forward as a as a culture, as a country, as a people, as a civilization, as a world, is um, not by fixating on things that are bleak, right? But on but thinking about possibilities yeah. and aspiration. And I would say yes. I mean, there's tremendous strain on on our culture, on our politics, at our universities, and. Um, I don't think that strain will break us, but what it does is it creates a kind of pressure that compels people to think about building anew or, you know, um, renewing the promise of things that have long been held to be of value. We're just trying to renew the promise of higher education with the intention that this will help us renew the promise of our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no single institution that could do this. I mean, we can't, I mean, there's just no way. Um, but it is possible for single institutions to have a kind of radiating effect. I'll give an example. I was speaking recently to a president of another university who's a sitting president of a liberal arts college. And I have lots of conversations behind closed doors with people across higher education. And they're all very encouraging. And this and this fellow said, you know, he goes, you, you guys need to succeed. He goes, my board of trustees at my college talks more about the University of Austin And they talk about our own college these days because you're provoking them to think about our practices and what we're doing. And, you know, you're 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 prompting us to examine ourselves. And, you know, if we have only that effect, if that's happening in dozens of boardrooms across the country, um, I think we will have added value to higher education. Um, But we do need to succeed because my, you know, my worry is that if an institution like ours with the momentum we have and the participation from so many wonderful people and the budding resources we have if we don't make it it's going to discourage other institutions from following in our wake so that there's a tremendous kind of pressure that we feel because of being at that kind of being the tip of the spear um i often say you know we don't need a single institution we need a whole armada of institutions Mm. all moving in the same direction and um you know that that's that's our hope that's our hope um so i but i'm hopeful i'm an optimist i mean just i mean i can't maybe it's because i have so many conversations with so many people who are so supportive of what we're doing mm-hmm. and you know and it to me it just creates a sense of um there's a there's sort of a chord that's been struck Mm-hmm. And and it's a chord that I think is spreading a kind of hopeful quality. People just want to see, they want to see people who are trying to make the world better. And look, we're not perfect. We may be wrong about some of the things we're, we intend to do. Uh, some of our assumptions about higher education, about other institutions may be off base. Some of the solutions we come up with may be less than perfect. We get it. Like, I mean, we are... We are we are flawed human beings creating a flawed institution. We get it, um, but we are earnest and sincere and trying and trying to identify how to make higher education and the culture better. And I think just that earnestness, I think, is something that people respond to. Yeah, yeah. And you know, to me, that that kind of earnestness, that kind of trying, that kind of recognition of your own flaws. You know, to me, that's as somebody who is interested in history and learning about the miracle of what this country is in so many ways that's a lot of how i you know read most of our history is 
flawed human beings trying in earnest to create a better system um, with all of its warts and all beginning anew with a um, a set of principles and a spirit of uh, possibility for you know themselves and the people who who live there you know I you you just kind of touched on this a little bit about what success might look like over time here and I'm wondering for you if you know that is a question that is still up for debate and the answer is not really readily available at this point but you know is your spidey sense that success for the University of Austin would be exactly what you just said other universities seeing you and course correcting on their own that they realize that some of their practices have gone afoul and they become inspired by your model to you know revise some of some of their own practices that may not be in the best interest of of their students or you know is it that you hope that there's many copycat schools that kind of pop up all over the country how do you think about what success might look like for you? I mean, the, the I mean, the, the greatest success would be if decades from now nobody even remembers why we started this institution, <laughs> what happen, because things have been resolved, right? The kind of problems that we're talking about are now are no longer acute. Hmm. Um, that would be success. That we're just a university like every other university, and we're all sort of, you know, and in, in you know, all pushing towards the same goals, maybe with different, you know. Um, different types of institutions, but we all have the same sort of values aligned. Um, you know, copycat institutions are flattering um, and they give you a sense that you are probably doing the right thing. Uh, I mean, we already, I, I just came back, I was I was giving a, a couple lectures in, in Europe and um, was approached by parties in a couple different European countries that are um, starting institutions inspired by what we're doing and asked for our help. Um, and, and, and getting those institutions off the ground. I'm like, guys, let me get one university started. I mean, come on, give me a little breathing room, but obviously we're, we're, you know, just honored and we'll help any institution any way that we can. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, success. I mean, I think success as an institution for us, success is, um, adherence to our mission. And 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 ensuring that the principles that we stand for remain fixed as the kind of center of gravity of this institution for decades and centuries—that's success. And success more broadly is again, if if the University of Austin is not an outlier, the University of Austin is considered um, just a conventional university, and that we're all uh, aligned in in the ultimate goal of what higher education should be. Yeah. And given that, you know, you are doing what you can to get one new school off the ground before giving sage advice to other people who are attempting to do the same, you know, do you have a personally like a North star for universities that either currently or historically have gotten this right? You know, is it mostly the Ivies of the late 1970s or late 19th century or the University of Chicago now? You know, who, who, which yeah. universities or institutions of higher learning in general do you, you know, try to look to for um, modeling, or you know, in your mind, are potentially still living up to the their own creeds, their own mottos that are blasted all over their, you know, founding documents and their their buildings on campus. 
Well, I, I mean, I'll confess my bias. I mean, I am a University of Chicago graduate, um, and uh, I did my graduate work and my PhD. And um, University of Chicago has been purposeful about issues around academic freedom and open inquiry for decades. Um, and recognized very um, early on that these principles had to be articulated and defended. So we have the Calvin Report, Chicago Statement of um, Freedom of Speech um, and Academic Freedom. It's, a, it's an institution that is self-aware and, and aware of the threats to academic freedom and other issues so that um, you know, they've been able to put safeguards up that, that uh, protect these principles, not perfectly. Mm. Uh, University of Chicago, like every other institution, is subject to the same kind of turbulence that we find in a culture at large. And it's, um, I mean, it's a place that um, realizes its principles imperfectly, um, but I think you could say that of any institution. Um, I would say that St. John's where I was is another institution I think is admirably committed um, to the life of the mind and, and openness and um, is, you know, politically ecumenical, like you know, the faculty, I don't even know what most, what the politics of most members of the faculty are, because that's not the purpose of being there. Yeah. Um, so, and, and students as well. Um, again, St. John's isn't immune to the turbulence, but places like University of Chicago and St. John's have been so committed to their principles for so long that they have the resilience to kind of push through this turbulence and to come out the other end whole. Um, yeah. Uh, so those are those are schools that I admire, and and the DNA of those places I think is uh, is in the DNA of this institution as well. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about you know where you are now and where I've spent the last four years of my life, and where I almost certainly will be returning to this this winter, which is Austin, Texas. And I'd love to talk about that that city a little bit and the the thought that went into the decision to both name the school the University of Austin and to place you know what will be a physical structure or various structures in that town you know i know one of the observations that has stuck with me and i'm somebody who spent almost 10 years in san francisco that a primary difference between a place like san francisco and a place like austin is that austin is like a blueberry in a red sea and there is a you know tolerating a, a, a um, moderating effect perhaps that happens when you are a blue city surrounded by mostly red and that the intolerance and the lack of dialogue perhaps that uh, can happen in places like California which are overwhelmingly a one party state versus a place like like Austin um I think you know, just as someone who has lived in both places, there is a um, there's a richness and um, a component to that that I think, as a just a person living there, I have really appreciated. That has made life just more interesting, and that you don't necessarily know what someone's views are before you actually ask them. What what to you um, were the primary reasons that Austin was the place? to put this school, you know, what, what is it about the city and the, its location in the country? Why Austin in general for this new university? I mean, I, I, part of the reason is what you articulated. I mean, I think it's true that Austin is a place where, um, 
people of different political persuasions, belief backgrounds, experiences are in constant circulation. I mean, it's just, it's a relatively small city in a yeah. huge state. And, um, you know, you, you're, you're, you're going to meet all different sorts of people when you go to the grocery store or, you know, you go to the cafe or that. And that breeds a kind of uh, tolerance and acceptance. Um, and it's a kind of easygoing tolerance here. I mean, I don't find people sort of militantly holding their views on either side or any side of the political fence. Um, I think it's a culture that has um, developed over time. Uh, you know, this is a place that values uh, maybe freedom um, in ways that freedom, both as identified by those on the left and those on the right, mm -hmm. in ways that maybe we may have lost sight of in other locales. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that prioritizing of of the the freedom to live as one's conscience directs one is thick here in the atmosphere. Um, so that also creates an atmosphere that is um, less quick to judge others, um, and actually really curious about you know differences. I mean, I you know since I've been here. You know, you can you go to places, you know, on the one night you can go to like a honky tonk, like the broken spoke. And it's, you know, it's unbelievable. It's like, a, you know, like you feel like you're in a movie set, like people in cowboy boots and hats and, you know, doing the two step and all that, you know, and then the next night you go a couple of blocks down and it's some like, you know, alternative, you know, uh, you know, cutting edge band. And yet what you'll see is the crowds often toggle between those places. Yeah. You know, people go to both. Yeah. It was really interesting. I think music is a unifying force here. Another reason we're in Austin is um, Austin is simply, I think, the most dynamic city in the country right now mm -hmm. with all of the, the entrepreneurs who are moving here, the businesses that are starting here, the businesses that are moving here. They're moving here because of the sense of freedom, that there's a lot of latitude, that you can pursue things towards, you know, towards a greater good, you know, on your own terms. And that there's very little that'll sort of stand in your way. And that really creates a fertile environment for things being, you know, created and for innovation and for startups and that. And as a startup university, that's an environment for us to be in. It's also a place where our students want to be and where opportunities are. So, you know, you add all of that together and, you know, Austin is kind of a natural fit for an institution like ours, um, you know, that is really, really um dedicated to uh, this very kind of, uh, you know, this sort of interchangeable nature of human experience, that everything is about openness and tolerance and exchange, and that will become better because of that. I think Austin exemplifies that, not perfectly, but I think it certainly exemplifies it. Yeah. You know, we've talked during this conversation about just the overwhelming demand that you have received already from both, you know, p potential faculty or current faculty at, at other universities and for, you know, students or potential students that want to get involved in some way. You know, you are building this day by day. And, you know, I I'm confident that you will get to a point where more and more of these, you know, professors and, and students will be able to tap into you know, hopefully the magic that you're, you're, you know, able to capture and create at that school. But for someone like a faculty member that wants to get involved, but hasn't yet heard from you or a student that knows they would like to enroll, but there just isn't uh, the bandwidth right now to accom accommodate all of those, 
young people who want to be associated with the school, what would you say to them? You know, how, how can they, um, what, what should they do? How can they stay in touch with the university and how could they get involved in, in your assessment of the way things stand right now? Yeah. I mean, definitely um, we have a sign up for a newsletter uh, for a newsletter on our website. That's where most of the information goes out to those who are interested in receiving it, but we're also looking for, and I think we have places to um, indicate this on our website for folks who are interested in, you know, getting involved with particular areas, whether it's helping us think about, you know, we're trying to get young people, for example, who are college age or younger, helping us think about, you know, how do you create a vibrant student culture that's not amenity oriented? Mm-hmm. Love to hear from students or uh, their ideas, and like, you know, from from people in the business world, um, what are you looking for from graduates? How do we create the program that's going to create the graduate that you want to hire? Um, and not just in the kind of you know technical way, you know, what skills do you need, but what kind of character are you looking for? What kind of person are you hoping will be formed by an institution like this? And so, you know, I think there's lots of opportunity for, for um, people outside the institution to get involved in those conversations. Uh, we also do, over the course of the next year or two, we are planning on um, putting out a lot more content that's related to the things that we value. Um, we're working on some sort of masterclass style uh, lecture series from faculty who are, you know, uh, related to the project um, and others. Um, we've been thinking about uh, some online programming, um, especially for high school kids, but maybe for the general public. Uh, again, it is a bandwidth issue for us because, you know, we're trying to you know, build a university at the same time, trying to build the meta university, all this other stuff around it um, sometimes can be intimidating. But for the reasons you said, I mean, there are so many people who are just sort of waiting for us to give them an opportunity to join us in this project. And so we're, we're trying to be as responsive to that as possible. Um, So I think as we move forward with every step, as our team continues to grow, as we get our feet more solidly on the ground with things like our curriculum and accreditation and that, and, you know, that gives us more and more um, space to expand the project outwards. And, and and we're, you know, a little bit, I'm personally of two minds about scaling. I mean, I, I really believe that the truest form of education is something that happens in person, yeah. especially for undergraduates, the kind of formative experience you have for in-person education in the community around that. I don't think it can be replaced. Um, but on the other hand, there are lots of people out there we're interested in learning a lot of things. And if we could reach them through online lectures or otherwise, um, you know, I think that's, that is a worthy um, pursuit. So uh, yeah, we're working on all fronts right now. Yeah. And I know we've talked about the, you know, the breaking ground and and building an actual school. And we've talked a little bit about the the timeline of what, you know, you, some of your goals are for the institution itself, but in terms of physical structures you just said this that and i i totally agree that the best kind of learning happens in person face to face with a professor what's the time time frame looking like on that where you actually have physical buildings that are enduring that are a part of the university of austin i know you said i think in two years you're hoping to have the first you know inaugural class is that when you hope these buildings will be ready for students to be you know learning in and and potentially living on campus as well? 
I, I mean, I would love it if we're able to at least put up the first phase of the campus in time for those first students. Two years is a pretty tight time frame in the world yeah. we live in today, <laughs> uh, you know, um, especially for massive building projects. So, uh, you know, we're going to be we're working on build sort of designing, developing, building the campus. That's an ongoing thing for us. We will have an in-person campus ready for students when they come or even if it's a transitional campus. So we're looking at you know places that we may um, may use for the first couple of years of operation while we're building out the larger campus. Um, so we are committed to being in person um, and being in Austin. So we'll have those things, um, whether or not you know we begin on day one on the permanent campus or we're still, you know, they're still developing that. There's construction going on. It's a little early to tell. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we've all learned you know right now that you know building things takes a long time, uh, you know, supplies, supply chains, contractors, uh, the whole process is really, um, much more you know, kind of cumbersome and extended than it has been traditionally. So we want to be realistic about that, but when we bring our freshmen in, we're going to be in person sitting around seminar tables with real professors and real conversations and a real community from day one. Yeah. I know we talked about, you know, what, interested faculty and interested students, how they can stay in touch and potentially get involved. What about, you know, other skills that you you would, you need at this point, you know, non-students, non-faculty, just kind of the nuts and bolts of getting a university off the ground. What kind of, you know, people might you be looking to hire? What kind of skill sets might be really useful at this point? Any uh, initial thoughts on what that, what, what might be particularly helpful for you at this point? Well, what we're really gearing up for and and looking for um, help with is, you know, sort of the middle part of next year. So middle part of 2023 is when we're going to start recruiting the class for the following year. So folks who can help us design our sort of admissions outreach and help us think about our admissions process and how we're going to approach that and, and how we're going to spread the word about the university and that, that kind of outreach. Um, generally communications. We have a great communications team, but we have so many projects on our plate. Like we we're just saying master classes and, and, <laughs> and websites. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's the, I mean, everything we do up until relatively recently, there was sort of one person doing everything, you know, one, one guy working on, on comms and another person working on advancement. And now we've sort of built the team out a little bit, but compared to, you know, most universities, I'll give you an example, hmm. you know, you know, we're, trying to raise about $250 million in the next couple of years to, for the first part of our, our campaign. And we're doing great. Most schools have literally dozens of people working in advancement to raise that kind of money. Up until a few months ago, it was me and a guy named Chad. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and now we have, you know, two or three other people on board who are helping us out, but still just a tiny, tight little team of people. Um, to to do something of that, to achieve something of that scale. And that's how, you know, every aspect of the university, a tiny, tight team of people working on something that's really, really, um, you know, substantial and, and challenging. But that's also been a strength for us because that small group of people, we are so tightly bound together by the challenges and immensity of this project. You know, we have, have such... Um, um, I mean, I'm just absolutely blessed by the people who have committed their their 
talents and their time, and their lives to this project. And we're all sort of in this together. The esprit de corps of this institution is just really amazing. And I think that gives us a kind of energy that we might not have if we were a massive sprawling organization. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that for this, at this point in time, it's been kind of positive to be um, a tight team, but we do need, you know, we do need to bring others on board who can help us build out and scale up as we go from being, you know, a university that's becoming the university that is. Yeah. Um, Pano, this has been such an honor and a pleasure for me. And I, you know, I really think you are, you are honoring something beautiful about the human spirit and human inquiry that is worthy of the kind of you know energy and effort and dedication that I know you and many of your your um your coworkers are are contributing to it. And I want to I want to thank you for that. You know, you do a few of these these interviews every once in a while, and I know you, I've lobbed plenty of questions at you, and so have other interviewers who have who have talked to you. Are there any other questions or subjects or you know, points about the school that you think, you know, you don't get a chance to address enough or that you think are worth the public knowing about that might, maybe we can just close the conversation with anything else that may come to mind that you'd like to share about this school or the initiative or, or really anything that you think is, is worthy of a little bit of extra time here. You know what, I, I think what I'd um, point us towards is something that I was just working on this morning. We're doing a proposal um, for something we call the Polaris Center. And this will just give you a sense of, you know, when you get to build a university from the ground up and you could rethink every element, every aspect of, of um, the university and, and a student's experience. And what, we, what we think a lot about is how do we, um, how do we find a means for students not only to develop intellectually, to develop skills, but to kind of go through the process of discernment that will orient them towards a flourishing life. So what are they developing those skills for? What are they, what are they, what are they earning this degree to do? Um, what's the most meaningful direction that they can go in? And so we've we're creating what we call the Polaris Center, which is essentially a center that will provide, um, let's say, a vocational and um, uh, philosophical through line that begins when students, before they even arrive at the university and carries through the entire four years of their experience by providing opportunities for them to always be thinking about how their greatest talents meet the world's greatest needs. Right. So before students even arrive on campus, for example, we're going to have a Polaris retreat. And in that retreat, we're going to spend three days together, the cohort of new students, faculty, and we're going to be reading things, first of all, like Martin Buber's I and Thou, that, that help us think about our relationship to others and our relationship to the world. And then we're going to have, we're going to be bringing in, you know, guest speakers who are going to talk about, um, you know, from all different fields, technology, business, finance, the civil service, et cetera. We're going to talk about how they've made meaningful lives out of their professions and what it takes to to follow the professions they're in, and then and then in the first two years uh, of a student's experience, we're going to have Polaris courses that are actual courses that are about again deep reading and and self reflection around purpose and meaning in life mm -hmm. that run through in parallel to all the other courses that they're taking, and then after. The second year, students will engage upon what we call a Polaris project. So the first two years are kind of meditating on some big, grand um, project that they can undertake. 
that will match their talents and the world's need. And then they propose this project. Um, the project is approved. And then they get to spend two years trying to um, bring that project um, to its realization. And we're asking to think of moonshot projects like, you know, uh, how do you develop robotic delivery systems for vaccines during the next pandemic? You know, if you're an engineer, you know, or, you know, if you were to write a symphony in honor of lost languages, what would that what would that symphony be? And and the idea is that their, their education that they are going to be um, pursuing with us has a kind of core or spine or direction, some big thing that's driving the courses they decide to, to take, the internships they decide to undertake, the, the extracurriculars they do, the people they meet. Um, because what we want them to be able to do is identify challenges, think about human need, um, propose solutions, plan, try things out, get things wrong, try again. In other words, we want them to learn how to learn and learn how to match who they are and what they can offer to the world with the things that the world needs. So, you know, we're developing this whole Polaris Center experience. It really spans the entire time they're with us. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's woven throughout the academic experience. Um, because for us, Polaris is the North Star. It's that thing that we're ultimately aiming for. And again, that's human flourishing. And we believe that human flourishing is achieved by aiming for that thing that's just slightly beyond our line of vision. And that's truth. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a worthy endeavor and um, the best way that you know, an education can really motivate and inspire people. And um, I'm just so appreciative of what you guys are trying to do there. And uh, you know, personally, it was just a, an honor to be able to, to do this and to talk to you and to share this conversation. And um, I have a lot of admiration for you and you know, so many of the people, like I said earlier, that are associated with the University of Austin are some of my favorite people I've never met, but just people I have admired from afar for a long time, just as thinkers and brave individuals. Um, Pano, it was a real, real pleasure for me to do this. And uh, I think I speak for a lot of people in wishing you a lot of luck. And um, I hope you're able to at least get some sleep over the next couple of years because this is a hell of an undertaking for you, but um, thanks for doing this so much, man. Thank you so much for the conversation, Anna. It's great pleasure. And since you are going to be located in Austin, at least part of the time, you probably get to meet a lot of these folks as we're, we're going to have down here building this institution together. And uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to, to um, talk about what we're trying to achieve. And thanks to all of you who have listened to this podcast or watched it. Um, you know, we really, really are earnestly trying to pursue what we think is uh, critically important for higher education and for the culture. And being able to speak to you all about this is um, just a privilege. So thank you. You got it. I can tell. Thanks so much, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Oh,